Welcome to the Parallel Worlds podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Peter F. Hamilton, a best-selling science fiction author and one of my personal favourite authors as well. Uh, his work includes the Greg Mandel series, the Night's Dawn trilogy, the Commonwealth saga and collections of short stories, uh, and the Salvation Sequence. Uh, we catching up with him at the moment as he launches his new novel, uh, Salvation Lost. Uh, and I think that's probably where we'd like to start, if that's okay uh, with you, Peter. Um, you've got the new book out. Uh, I believe this is the second one in the Salvation Trilogy. Is that correct? It is. This is the, the paperback version. I think the hardback came out at the end of last year, but this is the paperback launch. And I believe this series is set in a, a new universe for you. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the universe. Yeah, um, I done I think it's, it's seven books in the Commonwealth um, so it's time to move on. This one is um, again as you say I have to do something different every now and then I can't just keep writing in the same universe with the same characters. That's not to say I'm, I won't go back to the Commonwealth if I ever get a, a plot line that fits it then then I'll be back there. This universe I wanted to be different again, and I'm sort of sticking to relativity in that you can't have faster than light starships, but the relativistic starships take a, a portal with them so that once, once you reach the new star system, then you can just travel instantly between them. So it's sort of halfway between FTL and, and uh, keeping it real. So that, for a start, that was the good start uh, to it. So the, the way we expand out from Sol is, is limited by the speed of light. So we can't zip across the galaxy if, if we find something new, if we see something new on the other side of it. Um, it starts off with a fairly simple premise. There's um, an alien artifact found on a, on a planet, the furthest ship we've got out there. I think it's out to 80 light years, it's traveled now. And they find this alien ship and a team is sent to investigate it to see if it's a threat or not. And from that premise, the whole book begins. I'm not going to do spoilers for you. I have finished the, the third book, Sense of Salvation. I'm in the middle of copy editing, which all authors hate. I've got the proofread on that. Uh, and as far as I know, it's, it's still coming out towards the end of the year, September, October, I think October, isn't it? It's scheduled date. Um, I haven't heard different yet. It's interesting that you said that you're um, not finished with the Commonwealth, but that you had to write something else. Because I was curious with the Commonwealth books, whether they were written as a grand plan or whether you wrote the first ones and then you started with the concept for the Void trilogy and merged it into the Commonwealth, or whether it was always planned to be part of the Commonwealth saga. This is, this is, we're going back to if the plot fits, put it in the universe. Um, after I, I think I sort of two thirds of the way through, I must have been Judas Unchained, uh, and I started to get the idea for the void. Uh, and I thought, well, this is, this would fit this universe very well. So it, it just flowed on from there. And then I wanted to kind of tidy it up a bit. So I, I did the, the, the last two books. Um, set sort of in the void and the commonwealth together so they were they certainly came separately and later 
but the the first five, shall we say, they all they all did flow together quite well. I I wrote the last two, um, Night Without Stars and uh, Abyss Beyond Dreams, as you could read those two without having read the first Commonwealth books. Although you're probably better off having read the first Commonwealth books. It's always been something that was I found curious because the the Void trilogy feels like it could have it could have stood alone as its own interesting concept without Commonwealth, but obviously benefits from from all of the history that comes from the Commonwealth. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, as I say, I'd only done the two books in the Commonwealth by that time, so. Um, but like I say, I mean, we're up to seven now, or even eight if you count the spent youth, which is sort of introduction. Um, so yeah, I, th I think eight, seven, eight books is enough for the moment. Um, I thought one of the things that I've always found very interesting about your work is that uh, even in the very far future, it's it's quite grounded in physical principles. You you seem to allow yourself a very limited number of MacGuffins. You know, do, I mean, do you actually have a hard limit on, you know, I will only allow myself a certain number of things which actually break physics as we know it? I'd, I'd like to keep them to a minimum. Uh, I, Larry Niven's quote served that very well. Um, if you can generate gravity, you can do anything. Um, and if you can do anything, you're going to lose dramatic tension, shall we say? You limit yourself from that point of view. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the universe that all my characters live in, it has to have limits. The machinery, the technology progresses, because um, a lot of my stuff is set over several hundred years. Um, I think the, the Commonwealth, especially, and, and Salvation to come is set over many, many years. So obviously you see a progression of technology, but I do, I do like to keep the fundamentals there. It's interesting you mentioned keeping technology grounded, but, allow, but allowing it to develop over the course of the thing. Because um, it's, it's actually a concept you visit in a couple of places, but in Night's Dawn originally, um, you describe a, a divided humanity, broadly along the lines of technology versus biology. Um, as their, their their chosen evolution, and you sort of visit that again later in the Commonwealth books as well, in a in a slightly different way. But the kickoff for the Commonwealth books has um, Earth divided along similar kind of lines. It, is that something you see as a logical evolution from where we are now? That 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 we will end up moving in those kind of directions? Um, I th think we are. Uh, hmm, how can I put this? We're certainly, I mean, if you look at us now, politically, we're very divided. Um, and I, that also was, was part of the, the Night's Dawn series, is you had the Adamists and the Edomists, and then within the Adamists, you had everybody had, had gone to their own planet. I mean, no matter what your ideology or belief was, there was a planet for you, and you could live among your own kind and not have to worry about all the, the terrible people that don't think correctly on another planet. Um, um, which yeah, I wrote it in the in the started off writing it in the um, very late eighties, early nineties, um, when we were even more possibly than today we were divided a lot, um, and it was a reflection of those times. Um, with the the object being, and the, the the grand arc of that story being that yes, we we finally had the, we're all crammed together on this world, but we finally then got the space 
to live without the appalling neighbours. Each, as I say, everyone had their own planet and everybody basically calmed down so that at the end of the night storm, I'm not giving too much away, we could just sort of basically come back together. I always think monoculture is a very bad idea, um, I, I've, especially for humans. I don't believe in that at all. Um, I think originality uh, should be allowed. I think I've discussed this before that um, if, if you or I had this, this grand utopial vision and we set up our constitution for it and we, we went off and founded our planet with all our followers, um, and then what happens when the next generation comes along and sort of looks around and goes, I don't like this. Um, do they then have to conform to us? Do they rebel? Is there a civil war? You have to allow elasticity in, in a political system. Um, if, in order for opinions to, to change, technologies to, to impact on the way society is conducted. All these things, all these factors come in from, from very different angles and produce completely different vectors dependent on, on who, who, they, who they hit the most. So yeah, I think we're always going to have a diverse culture on a, on a planet. I don't, I don't see any other way and I don't think there should be another way as well. But this having to live with the difference of opinion is something we're clearly struggling with at the moment. Yeah, very much so. The rise of the internet and social media makes it very easy for people to exist without, within their own monoculture and to only really associate with people who hold the same views as them. Um, and it polarises people in quite an extreme way. It does. And, and cancel culture is the result of it. Haven't had it happen to me yet. I'm sure it will. I'm I'm curious. You said you started writing Night's Dawn in the uh, sort of late '80s, early '90s. Um, I think the notes, the notes were coming together in the late '80s. I I was writing Mandel. I was certainly writing Mandel books in the late '80s, and then I'd finished that by probably '92. So I actually would have started writing. The bulk of Night's Dawn in, in the very early 90s, yeah. I came across an interesting quote from a previous interview by you. You said that you were never at school very interested in, in English or literature and that science was always much more your focus. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious when that changed, you know, what, what made you go, oh, this, this science lark doesn't seem to be uh, something which provides me with a, a steady and regular income. Published author, that's what, that's what I need to, to, really, <laughs> to, to really secure myself a paycheck. No, no, I never quite thought that extreme. Um, it wasn't that I didn't like doing English, I just, I just preferred the sciences. Um, but having said that, I was an avid reader. Um, I, I really did read all the Asimovs that we could find. And this is the 70s. There wasn't a lot of science fiction about. Um, nothing like there is today. Um, but it was, I, di I did have a, a, a love of books and still, still do. Not that I get to read many these days. Um, but that was always there. And that, that, that little background thought that so many of us have, uh, that, that little nagging idea that, oh, I could do this. You soon learn very quickly you can't go from zero to novel. Um, but that, that was the background of it. I, never dis I wouldn't say I ever dismissed writing and English literature. Um, but it's, it's a, obviously, it's, it's the perfect mix for me is the science and the writing. So... Both Night's Dawn and the Greg Mandel series paint 
frankly quite a bleak picture of our immediate future. Nightstorm is a little rosier uh, once you get through it, although I wouldn't necessarily say it was all, uh, all sweetness and light, but um, both of them paint the picture of the next 50 years, essentially Earth's biosphere becoming utterly wrecked. Um, and I live I live around Peterborough, uh, which for those of you who don't know is where the Greg Mandel books are set. So I've been stockpiling hovercraft components for the last five years. I, I, again, this is a similar thing. Is this, I don't think anybody would blame you if you did, but is this where you see um, humanity's near future? Is this still where you see it? Because as you say, you wrote these books in the late eighties. I, it's kind of exaggerated for dramatic effect. Um, I really hope it doesn't get that bad. But then, you know, I was, I was, like you say, I was, I was doing this over the 80s and you read every month or so how little ice there is left and, and what's happening in Antarctica. Um, there's actually greening started there. Um, so, well, I can only hope I'm absolutely wrong about it, frankly. Um, but, but yeah, it, it was a, and it happens in Salvation as well. <laughs> I've done it there. Um, I, I mean, you are. I am extrapolating. Uh, you know what I see around me, and the the global warming. Uh, it's it's not something I know. There are a lot of people do deny, but it's not something I would, I would ever deny about. I mean, you just look around. We're again, we're in the middle of a of a very very hot start to summer, uh, which is. You know, they're getting quite a, these once-in-a-lifetime events are coming along every few years now. Hopefully this is going to, to taper off. I mean, we've seen one of the good sides of lockdown uh, is we've seen, you know, what it's like without all the pollution. And we've seen just how much we do pollute the atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, I don't, given that a lot of things I that are in the books is uh, what I've extrapolated from now, I, I think I was fully justified in... in giving us a fairly bleak ecological future. I, I do think that the realization will kick in for us at some point. I, I think that's inevitable. Um, the trouble then starts is, is how far along the curve are we and, and how long is it gonna to take to, to bring it back to normal, whatever you wanna call normal. Exactly. There's a huge arguments over that. Fortunately, um, we seem to have put to bed an awful lot of the arguments of, or at least anything which resembles a credible argument, which says this isn't a thing that's happening anymore. 20 years ago, when I was at university and studying this, there was still an awful lot of quite respected academics saying it was all fear-mongering. I mean, there's still a lot of questions about it. I mean, we don't understand the sun cycles. I mean, there are different length cycles and are they overlapping and what is the actual uh you know how much can we blame on carbon dioxide and all this is it's still but, but the overall result I, I i don't think there are a lot of people arguing against it now i wondered if it was okay um to talk about your take on alien life uh, across all of your books you don't write aliens as humans with pointy ears you write aliens as genuinely weird, but also not monocultures. Your alien cultures aren't monocultures, which is something that a lot of science fiction authors do, is that all Klingons are warlike and all Vulcans are logical, and it doesn't stand up to scrutiny about the way cultures evolve. I, I'd like to start with the primes, because you, they're also one of the few that you actually write anything from their perspective. 
so what gave you the idea for the primes? Um, it's basically a case of reverse engineering. I mean, the, they appeared in Judas on, uh, Pandora Star and Judas Unchained, uh, which are basically my, my rewriting. Of, it's the classic alien invasion story. So first off, we have to have a, a, a plausible modern reason for an alien invasion story. I mean, the, the, you know, there is no logic. If you, if you have the technology to fly between stars, you, you have the technology to terraform a world. Therefore, you don't need to, to conquer ours and wipe us out and take it over. I mean, the biology, the incompatible biologies for a start would, would kind of negate that. But that is that, from that, I worked out that that is a very human point of view. So to, to come up with a species that, to which taking over a planet is obvious, logical and right for them, you have to go into their, their nature, um, which leads you to their evolution and, and why they are the way they are. And the prime's evolution and development produced a species that regards everything else as basically um, not worthwhile, as, as something that needs to be eradicated. Yeah, all other life is taking up space that their life could be living on. Um, so from that point of view, they're absolutely right to, to come to a, a human evolved planet, uh, something we've terraformed, uh, sterilize it and start again, because you know, we're just taking up their space. Um, so what, what, what is wrong with that? Why are these people even fighting back? You know, I mean, um, so yeah, it was it was fun to 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 do that kind of, uh, of reverse evolution, if you like, work out how they got to where they are, uh, which is why I did put in. I think it was an entire chapter on how how they grew up to be this way inclined. It's actually one of my favourite chapters in the book because it, it's really nice to have an antagonist like that who isn't trying to take over the world because they're evil or ha 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 ha. They're trying to, you know, you, you understand their motivations. Terrible and frightening though those motivations are. But you do this also with the, uh, the Sylphan, the High Angel, the Vile, who again, you, you for all of them, you create these very rich cultures, which you then only interact with tangentially a lot of the time. I'm wondering how thick the pieces of the uh, documents were for the, the various alien races and how much ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, oh, there are, there are quite copious notes, um, certainly for, if for no, no other reason than I need con proper continuity. Um, but yes, then they, the sylphin are relatively well developed in my mind. Um, there's a limit to how much of that. I want to make them vaguely enigmatic, which is why you don't, you get, a, you get an idea of what they are and what they were capable of and, and the mother home, which is still sort of the queen bee, which you never get to actually meet, although you get to meet the messengers from it, all this kind of thing. It, it, it is logical and it is all put together in my head, but I don't see the need to, show everything um you know we, we don't know everything about this world yet we know how to live in it i think i think we were better off not knowing too many more details about the sylphon i should say just to just to, but not to give you again not to give you any spoilers but just to, to sort of blow your theory away the um the aliens in salvation are a monoculture interesting 
having read your other work, so I will trust that that's not that's not uh, narrative laziness on your part, but for some other. <laughs> no, the, again, we're into specific reasons why there are monoculture and and how that evolved. So, but yeah, that, that's just um, just so you know. Given that you 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 write an awful lot about alien cultures, how do you feel about the fact that, as far as we can see at the moment, the universe is terribly empty? I, I don't just mean we haven't like you know been visited by aliens or anything like that, but given the size and the age of the universe, we also haven't detected anything that looks like aliens talking to each other or you know detecting radio waves from other cultures or anything like that. The Fermi paradox. Mm. Where yes. are they? Yeah. Um, I think given how large, which is infinite, the universe is, um, we've taken, what is it, something like four billion years to, to get up to this level on this planet. Um, and we've gone, and only in the last few, well, last couple of hundred years have we finally gone down the technology route. Um, had we chosen a more agrarian route, we'd, we'd, we'd still be farmers and, uh, you know, going about in sail ships. Um, so the, the possibility of overlap, um, coupled with the distances involved, and we have got a huge, huge list of exoplanets now, which is awful for science fiction writers. We keep getting caught out on this. Um, we've, we've got to match the star system to the planet. These days. Never had to do that. Um, we, so every, every planet, exoplanet we've discovered has, there are some of them in the, the, the life band, the Goldilocks band, whatever you want to call it. Um, but not many within several hundred light years. Um, uh, so, you know, if you take that out of, of several thousand light years, it'll probably be increased. And then you've got to get into the specific chemistry of the planet. Uh, is there water? Is there what we understand as organic chemistry? Does that exist and is that triggered? And if it, if it goes a completely different way to ours, um, you know, we are the, the product of a, of a billion random choices. Uh, although there, there is, I do understand there is the argument that this is the logical outcome. Um, we don't know because we've never had anything else to compare it with. This is part of the fun. So, uh, you know, how long are we actually going to be broadcasting signals for? I mean, we're shifting to the internet now. You know, how long, how long does a society actually broadcast out into space wildly? There's just no telling. Um, so if there's, a, all right, if there's a society like ours or a, a biology like ours, the possibility that it's on a planet near enough, I mean, we then run into the inverse square law of how far you'd actually be able to pick up radio signals. Um, at the, same, at the same time we exist and they existed, say, a thousand years ago and the, the messages are just reaching us, you're getting into very thin probabilities there. Um, given, again, given the size of the universe, yes, there will be other living things out there. Given the size of the universe, the, the prospect of us actually ever encountering them or even hearing of them is remote, sadly. Feels terribly lonely on our little world at the moment. Yeah, or, or there's always the, the, the sort of more older theory that we're just in quarantine because we're so awful. Uh, as Douglas Adams said, mostly harmless. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take this off on a little bit of a tangent just about our own 
exploration of space because for me personally it's quite interesting to see uh, nations starting to kind of it feels like get a bit more interested in their own space programs we've got you know america talking about going back to the moon we've got china talking about mars obviously it's a crux of science fiction that you know we have expanded further and we have colonized other planets do you see that as 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 something that we're you know we will eventually end up doing um it's interesting like i said it's it's coming around again i mean i grew up i was a, a kid when when we landed on the moon and then what the hell happened why did it all go wrong but when you're looking back at it now, um, that was always a spike driven by politics. Um, there was no other response the Americans could give to Sputnik and Gagarin being first other than get to the moon first. Uh, and it was politically driven, which is why it stopped because it was a race and we got there and we won and that was it. There was nothing else for it, nothing else to follow on from. Uh, and now, and it, and it took a super took superpowers to do this because they were the only ones that had the money. Um, now the technology is becoming cheaper, not cheap, but cheaper. And other other China is a growing power and sees its future. And this is a way of, of and the concept of the Americans landing on the moon by twenty twenty four, I think, is the target, which I am skeptical about the meeting. To be fair. Um, is Trump driven? Trump wants back on the moon before his second period is over. It's politics driven again. And again, with the, the, the thing that's just come along recently is that Trump is also, the, the American administration is also saying that Americans, if they land on the moon, they have the right to mine it for ice. Um, it's it's all it's all down to politics again. Although um, we're now getting into the interesting stage of people like uh, Bezos and Elon Musk, uh, who Musk is certainly painting himself as someone who who sees going to Mars as as the savior of humankind. Well, the amount of effort it takes to get to Mars, I'd rather have it spent on putting the Earth right first, please. But I, I don't begrudge, begrudge people who want to go there to go there. Um, it's a, terraforming Mars is a huge project. And then we get into, uh, if you've ever read Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, is it actually, do we have the right to do that? Which is interesting. Um, I think Jared O'Neill was, was, uh, was right in that if we're gonna live anywhere, we should be um, building our own habitats out there, which gives us a, a huge scope to go back right back to the beginning of, of Night's Dawn, which is if you if you have the technology to get out there reasonably cheaply, you can build your own almost island size uh, habitat. I mean, he was talking about things 30 kilometers long with you know hundreds of, of square kilometers of, of landscape inside. That is a, a small nation. And so you can branch out socially. Uh, it, it gives us the, opposition, the opportunity to do that, I think, space, habitats and I, I really don't like it has the bad connotations of space colonies now that is that is the wrong word to use on these things um, founding new societies building habitats for them to live in I think will be where we're going rather than Mars uh, if nothing else the gravity we don't know about 
the long term, I mean, the short term effects of zero G are quite terrible on the human body. Um, so we don't know what kind of effects living on Mars will have. And when you can build a, a much better environment and control it uh, in, a, in a habitat scenario, then why would you go to Mars? Why would you live on a suboptimal environment when you can build one which is yeah, tailored exactly. specifically for your physiology? Yeah, and, and of course, it's all down to energy. I mean, the, the kind of energy we're, we're living on at the moment, um, the, the carbon burning one, has, has got to come to an end. Um, we're, we're seeing now, I think, again, during lockdown, uh, we, we had a whole period of time where we're in the UK, we haven't had coal power. We haven't been burning coal, uh, which is a great step forward. I was always slightly skeptical about the... Um, wind turbines because we don't have the storage capacity now we're developing the storage capacity i'm, I'm kind of in favor of them uh so yeah things things are technology is changing the way we, we even people like me still look at things so yeah um but if you if you're going to go to mars you need you need energy to do so i'm stating the obvious here but um the, the quantities of energy involved, again, I'd rather see deployed back here uh, using re closed loop recycling for manufacturing products. That is, if, if your car runs out, uh, is finally, you know, you run it for 15 years into the ground, as a lot of people do, and you have to get a new one. Well, I'd like the new one to be made up, you know, smelt down the old one and, and build it into something new. We, we still have um, a consumerist culture with, with built-in obsolescence. Um, that has to change as well. So as people's attitudes have to change toward, to giving us a better future rather than just, hey, let's all go to Mars. Uh, that, is, that is not the solution. It's something I'd encourage and would watch and, and would like to visit some point. But we need to get an awful lot of other things online first. You mentioned while you were talking there about um, uh, a lot of authors um, that, that you've read uh, in in various different capacities. Do you have any particular favorite uh, authors yourself? Oh, no, it kind of changes. I don't, there's some I will look out for, the new book from, uh, you know, and then of course the trouble is I now know a lot of the science fiction authors. So I, I you know, oh, I, I better read that one because um, I got to talk to him at the next convention, um, which is, I've, I mean, I, I to be fair to myself on that, if I don't like what's written, I will not read it. I don't just read because it's someone I know and, and have to, to talk to in the bar. Um, and of course, I, I now have kids and I'm writing and, and I've been spent two years decorating the new house. Um, the, the time for reading is, is just getting depressingly short. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to, sorry, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead the fifth on that. And, and, uh, what it, because the other thing being, like I was saying, that there wasn't much about in the 60s and 70s. Now we have this huge explosion of, of genres and subgenres and sub subgenres. I mean, there really is something for everybody out there, no matter what your taste is, uh, which is a fabulous uh, way to go, I suppose. It's a, it's a great evolution of the, of the overall fantasy and science fiction genre is just the sheer amount of it and the sheer difference of it all. I had a, a friend of mine, and I, I didn't actually recommend you, but uh, I, I, somebody else re um, had you recommended to him as like the English Ian M. Banks. I was wondering how you felt about that comparison. 
Um, I think any comparison with Ian would would be uh, rather flattering, actually. Um, did you know? Did you know Ian? Uh, yes, we we met each other quite a few times. I was, I was we actually did um, an event about a month before he found out. You know, he got that cancer. Um, it, he he had no idea. It came as a, I mean, it was a shock to everybody, and it certainly was to me. Um, I, I, that was for the hydrogen Sinatra. I, so I still got the signed copy somewhere on the on the bookshelf behind me. Uh, that was kind of basically the last time I ever saw him. No, he was he was a, a great fun to be with. Um, very smart guy. Uh, are there any of the characters in your books which are inspired by real characters? You know, do you do you know an Aussie in real life, for example? Um, the most of my characters, I do name check a few friends every now and then. Um, my characters are composites of traits I've seen in other people, things I've seen other people do. Um, and I thought, oh, that would, that would fit that particular kind of person. Let's put that in as, as a background detail. Um, so that's how they come together rather than, oh, I'm going to put them in it and see what it see what happens um you need your characters to, to to take a certain route given the plot you've come up with so yeah name checks and traits but there's no actual anybody transplanted from real life do you have any particular favorite characters from the books any ones that you really enjoyed writing um i have i do keep asking this a lot so the answer is if you've heard me being asked this before it's still Gorbanelli. Um, who is so not me? It's it's fabulous. Um, it, it really lets your inner demon come to the fore. Um, and the, one of one of the reasons I do this is, is we're going back to the to the black and white good guys bad guys things. Is that people um, who hold different views from you don't do it just to annoy you. Um, they have their own perfectly logical reasons for for the way they think, the way they look at the world. Um, and you have to get into that mindset and write that mindset for somebody for Gore, who is this multi-billionaire, over-entitled financier, come, uh, he wound up running a whole lot of companies, but actually came good in the end. Um, but his attitude towards the likes of you or I, you know, we, we don't, you know, we're, we're cannon fodder. Um, but it was great fun to write him, you know? Uh, and that is that is how I try and approach most of, of the characters that are uh, unfavourable, shall we say, in the books. Morally ambiguous. Morally ambiguous, um, completely opposite to how you you would think and now how maybe I would think. Um, you have to make them real. You have to argue from their point of view. Um, otherwise, they do just become two-dimensional Nazis. And I, I don't want them in my books. I want people to have, I want people that I write about to be motivated to, to do what they're doing and to take the attitude they're doing. So that's how they come together. It's, I'm so tempted to ask you more questions about salvation at this point, because having said this, I was like, oh, you have any characters like that in salvation? Uh, is that a question you can answer without, 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 without ruining my Christmas? Um, there is actually, funnily enough, there is a, a very gore-like person again, um, is a multi-millionaire who is possibly even worse than gore, but has, has, a, has a future in the books different from how you meet him to start with. Um, so because, basically because we, we still do live in a, in a 
capitalist or a market orientated society, if you like. Therefore, you will have these people at the top who have a great deal of, of, of say over the way things go, more than the likes of you or I would ever have. So obviously, uh, it's a terrible thing, but the, they're actually more interesting than, than people on the street. Um, what they do affects more people, affects you know policy more, affects finances, economics and politics. So by design they are in it. Although I do like looking at what happens to the little guy, which is one of the reasons Night Storm was so long, um, was because, yeah, there was the big, you know, the, the guys at the top making policy, uh, the admiral of the fleet, all this kind of thing were, 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 were fighting the battle. But the battle had an outcome on, on ordinary little people. And I, I wanted to, to deal with that as well. There's some lovely little moments in Night Storm where you take the time to write quite an extensive bit about a character who you will never meet again. It's just a regular person going about their life and having it ruined by all of these events that's happening. Yeah. Uh, and what, you know, because that's what happens in, in huge conflicts. Um, you, you do grind away at the, the little guy that can't fight back. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Peter. It genuinely has. I'm, I'm. Thank you. I'm glad you haven't asked me what I'm doing next because I have no idea at the moment. There are a lot of ideas anyway, there are a lot of possibilities, but I'm not exactly lost for for concepts. But actually, which one I'm going to do first is is another matter. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Salvation Lost is available in paperback from Pan Macmillan. Um, well, right now. Okay.